Okay, boys and girls, welcome to The Dad Presents. Thank you so much for joining me. Hope you're out there spreading love and joy and uh, spreading that liberty message. So we got a great show for you today. In about five minutes, we have actor Greg Ellis, who you probably know from Pirates of the Caribbean or 24. He's going to share his gut-wrenching tale of divorce in California and how his wife had him locked up in a mental institution on what pretty much amounts to nothing but hearsay. So if you're a divorced man or you're considering divorcing your wife or you live in California and you're married, this is a must listen. This is a tragic, horrific tale and you definitely got to listen to it. He's got a book coming out later this month. Buy it. I read it. It's phenomenal. So anyways, guys, uh, that'll be in about five minutes. Otherwise, how y'all doing? Um, you know, over here, I'm, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to give you TMI, but I'm just, I'm dealing with a very inconvenient peen rash right now. Um, that's right. You know, I I thought I was past the age of caring at all about my appearance. I really did. You know, I've been married for 75 years. Um, I still keep my shit together, but I do it because I have a lot of metal in my body and I'm constantly aching. So I exercise to stay out of pain. I really don't care what I look like anymore. In fact, in two weeks for 4th of July, um, I'm letting my buddy give me a mullet. That's how little I care. Um, Just on a dare. Giving me a mullet and I'm going to do it. But anyway, so I thought I'm past the point of caring. But last Saturday, we're at my kid's basketball game. And my wife and her three little cute friends were all lusting over the kid's basketball coach. They kept making comments about his butt and how terrific it looked in his tapered sweats. And... um. Well, I mean, I got them bumps. I got them bumps, and I didn't appreciate this guy stealing all my shine. So immediately I get on my phone, and I decided to get some of these fashionable tapered sweats because, you know, I'm 48, guys, and all my sweats are like old school, Larry Bird, super baggy, you know, sweats that are built for slothing around on the couch and and watching Netflix and engorging myself in a gluttonous heap of pizza and beer. I don't have these new fashionable sweats. They call them joggers. I didn't even know about them. Didn't even know about them. But the, apparently they're tapered. They, they, they hug them bumps. And, and they make the ladies, you know, get silly. So I decided to get some of these. But me being me and thinking that fashion is just dumb. I mean, honestly, I, I, I'm sure we've talked about this before. But it's dumb. Fashion is dumb. If you're into fashion, you're dumb. You have a bunch of gay guys at a magazine deciding that something is hip. And the next thing you know, every girl in town is walking around in sweatpants that say juicy on her ass. Or or now they're they're wearing these ridiculous onesies that two years from now, they look back on the pictures and they're laugh about how they look like giant babies. I, I honestly, I think these gay guys, gay guys, you know, they're not they're not into the ladies. And I think they're just fucking with women when they make some of these things into fashion trends. And, and they just, they bite on it. But anyway, whatever. I decided to get these sweatpants. But I hate fashion, so I wasn't about to drop $100 on a pair of sweatpants from Nike. So, of course, I got the cheap knockoffs on, on Amazon for $19.99. And, you know, you guys know, unless I'm wearing sheath underwear, code word dad, I don't wear underwear. So, uh, the sheath were dirty, and I'm, I'm free-flowing, and, and whelp those... Cheap-ass 1999 Amazon sweats gave me a rash on my tallywhacker, and it's annoying as fuck. And I did it all in the name of vanity, and I'm 48, so I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in myself for, for falling into that. So anyway, guys, that's how it's going here. Um, how you guys doing? So before we get into the interview, I wanted to discuss the hot fire that was dropped in our laps this week, which confirmed, you know, I'm not here to brag. Sometimes I'm here to brag, but it confirmed and validated everything we've been saying on this show for a year. We're going to chat about Fauci's emails because because this is a bombshell and it was the the reinforcement I needed uh, to feel validated and victorious because I've been taking a lot of shit in the last year for my narrative on COVID. My, my, my friends who used to consider me to be a pretty liberal guy, they're like, what happened to you? Well, what happened to me is, is the government's been lying to you and it's 
clearly obvious. And now we have these emails, right? We got we got one from him about masks where he writes to uh, some woman named Sylvia. This is from his government email. And he says, masks are not really for infected people to prevent them from spreading the infection to people who are not infected. And goes on and on and on. And he says, I don't recommend you wear a mask, talking to his friend, um, and says it's not going to protect her. And he says, sometimes the cloth masks can make you more at risk. This flies in the face of everything he's been saying to us about wear a mask, wear two masks, wear three masks, put a diaper on your face, never go outside. He's saying masks don't work. He's straight up saying it in this email to his friend. Okay. And this is before all of that. They don't work. The N95s, if you're not wearing an N95, they don't work. Okay. But that that's bad. But this next one burns my ass hairs even more because what we've known all along and what I've been saying all along is they shouldn't have shut the schools down. The kids are not in danger and you're sacrificing their future. You're hurting their education. You're messing with their ability to socialize. You're ruining their development and they're not even a threat. And guess what? The government knew it all along. They tortured your kids for no good reason other than they're sick fucks. Okay. So in this email, He says to his buddy Dick or some scientist named Dick, Richard Allen Johnson, that that um, let's see. Transmission is definitely by respiratory droplet, blah, 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 blah. Uh, No information about transmission of fetus. Children have a very low rate of infection. Children have a very low rate of infection. Well, okay. then why did you shut down the schools for a year? Hmm. How many children, it's a very low rate of infection. They don't get that sick when they get it. Less than 100 kids died of COVID. How many kids did you save by shutting down schools versus how many futures did you wipe out? How many kids are nervous little Nancys walking around scared of their own shadow and, and may never figure out how to make friends? How many versus how many you saved? I don't know, Tony. You tell me. Okay, and then there's a bunch of emails regarding the lab leak hypothesis. I'm sure you've heard all about them. Um, Fauci was completely aware of the lab leak hypothesis, and he was even looking into it. And the most damning email is from Peter Daszak. He was leading the, the WHO investigation into China. He thanked Fauci for citing a letter from virologists stating that the lab leak hypothesis was ridiculous. He told Fauci that they couldn't let that be the narrative. But the craziest part is, is, is when he's thanking him for referencing a letter, the letter he's talking about is a letter that he himself, Peter Daszak, wrote, although he kept his name off of it for obvious reasons, obvious conflict of interest. He wrote a letter saying how the, the, the lab leak theory was ridiculous. He had 23 other virologists sign on it, and he got that in front of Fauci. Fauci knew he wrote it. Everybody knew he wrote it. Fauci referenced it anyway these people are criminals they hurt your children they should be locked up and you know at some point you know t-minus two weeks and we're gonna hear tony fauci is stepping down from his post so he can take to the private sector and continue his heroic fight against covid something like that Def- it's definitely coming at this point they got to sacrifice fauci and they're going to but you shouldn't be satisfied at that point because there's a lot of blame to go around a lot of blame and a lot of pain and they're gonna. This is what they always do in these situations. They're gonna make somebody the fall guy, though. They're gonna protect his reputation by saying he's stepping down, and everybody else is gonna skate. You know, I'm still waiting to see uh, Bush and Cheney in prison for their lies in uh, 2001. That hasn't happened. I'm still waiting to see some bankers go to jail for 2008. That hasn't happened. They gave you uh, one fall guy in 2008. That uh, that dude running the Ponzi scheme. He was small potatoes. They, these people do not get punished. They're above the law. Anyway. Huh? What? Oh, guys, guess what? I'm hearing we have President Biden calling in the show. That's terrific. Okay, we're going to take this call live on the show. Mr. President, thank you so much for joining the show. This is the first time we've ever had a president on the show. We really appreciate it. Yes, well, I'm a big advocate for dad presents. 
one time in Scranton, my dad got me an old Red Ryder BB gun. Sir, it's the dad presents, not dad You presents. have a dad? Yes, I have Children a dad. Children shouldn't be playing with dangerous assault weapons. Oh, jeez. They should be home getting their hair washed and brushed and cleaned and sniffed. Oh, Mr. President, I, I don't I don't think you mean that. I, I don't know what's happening to the children. I was at the church bingo in Scranton. That's where I'm from, Scranton. Yeah, we, we know. It's all just malarkey. Yeah, a lot of malarkey. Malarkey all over the place. A lot of malarkey. Okay, Mr. President. Um, I wanted to talk to you about Dr. Fauci. After the release of his emails and how we've learned he's been lying to Congress, will you be firing him from his post? Oh, keep it in your hat, you two-faced spit licker. Oh, that's not nice, That sir. Joe Fauci's a great friend of mine. Oh, it's, uh, it's Anthony Fauci, sir. Don't you tell me who I know, you fart snapping caboose. Okay. We play shovel board together at the Old Elks Club in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I'm from Scranton, you know. We know, we know. I'm actually from Pennsylvania myself, sir. One time... At the pool in Scranton, the blonde hair on my legs was standing oh, up, and all the little brown children, oh, they wanted to come play with my leg hair, but that pesky old Sorry. belly button picker corn pop, that fish-eyed two-bit hooligan, would have let those precious brown kids play with my leg hair. brown kids, sir. And then my good friend, old Joey Fauci, came and he slapped Corn not, Pop not Joey with, a, with, a, uh, with, a, with, a, with a six-foot-long bicycle chain. Uh, I, I don't think that's how the story goes, sir. Don't you tell me how my story goes, you pickle-tickling whippersnapper. Where do you get these insults? Do you even know who I am? Yes, Mr. President, I do. I'm yeah, go on straight, you apologize, you belly-pony-pony pony soldier. Belly-pony-pony. I pony. challenge you to a push-up contest. Sir, I'm I'm not going to have a push-up contest with you. Come on, sir. I'm half your age. Well, aren't you just a sweet tartan rainbow hugger? A what? What? What are you? You talking? remind me of my old nemesis, that 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 that, that, that racist uh, Donald Duck. He was always sir, you mean, saying you mean racist dog whistling things. So I, I punched that Donald Duck right in his some sir, Russian sir, nose. Sir, not a Russian, and you mean Donald Trump? Don't you tell me what I mean, you 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 jive jive and potato peeler. I don't understand. It's racist to make insults. black people get IDs. Oh. Black people don't know how to get IDs. Sorry. Black people don't know how to use internet. What, sir? They know how to use the internet. And that that Donald Duck, that doggone Trump. racist. He don't respect the colors. Sir, you you really shouldn't call black people that anymore. And. Don't you think it's a little bit racist to suggest they, they don't know how to get ideas? Why, why aren't you wearing a mask? Are you threatening me? Sir, we're on a, a I call. challenge you to a push-up contest. Oh, I'm not going to do that, sir. You pork bellied web whip-legger. What does that you mean? You probably don't even know how to sniff a woman. Oh, God. Uh, all right, sir. Thank you very much for calling in the show. Uh, President Joe Biden, everyone, thank you very much. And uh, that's it. Easy on the mustard, yeah, yeah, horse jack and trolley wag. Okay, thank you, sir. Goodbye. Where, where am I? Uh, is, is it Jello Day? Goodbye, sir. Okay, ladies and gents, that was your president, President Joe Biden. All right, this show is brought to you by SheathUnderwear.com, the, the most comfortable and sexiest underwear on the planet. Use code word DAD for 20% off. This podcast is also brought to you by the Expat Money Show. You can find it at expatmoneyshow.com. It's a great podcast. I listen to it every single week. They drop a new episode weekly. Um, it's hosted by Mikhail Thorup, fellow libertarian, great guy. Um, and they they uh, interview successful entrepreneurs who are traveling the world and, and doing business from out of the country. Um, it teaches people how to expatriate if they're interested in getting out of this country and how to do it while not getting killed on taxes, how to protect your assets, um, lower, lower your corporate tax bill. It's a fascinating podcast. They have, they have great travel stories. 
um, great libertarian ideals. These are, if you like this show, you're going to love that show. I highly recommend you check it out. As I've mentioned on this show the past couple of weeks, we had Mikhail on our show. And after having him on our show, we were so impressed that my wife and I privately contracted his services. And you can do the same. He consults with families who are looking to expatriate. And we are toying with that idea. It's a, very complicated process, and Mikkel makes it very easy and takes the intimidation out of it, and we're super excited about it. So definitely check out the show. I, I promise you love the show. Check it out. Um, great episodes every week, and uh, if you are interested, you can contract his services as well. You can hit me up at The Dad Presents. I'll tell you how to get in contact with him, or you can go to his website, expatmoneyshow.com. Also, his uh, podcast can be found on iTunes and Spotify and everywhere where you find podcasts. Check it out, people. All right, guys. Today, we got a great guest. We got actor Greg Ellis. You've seen him in Pirates of the Caribbean in 24. He's the host of The Respondent, and his book will be out June 22nd. It's his uh, personal gut-wrenching story that exposes how the family law system profits by destroying families and how the assault on masculinity is destroying the American family. So, Greg, we really appreciate you coming on to talk about this very personal and sensitive subject. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks, Matt. Thank you for having me. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate it. So, last night, I, I really dove into this book. I wanted to be prepared, and I read as much as I could. And I'm definitely going to finish this in my own time because I was, I was really entertained. It's really good. And before we get into it, I want to encourage all of the listeners to buy this book. It's, it's going to be a bestseller. I have no doubt. Your story of divorce, um, though it was entertaining, it's absolutely horrific. Um, I have friends who have lived through similar experiences, though not quite as tragic. And I'm glad someone is finally pushing back against the legal system and wokeness in general. And I'm just wondering, like, what kind of pushback have you gotten for your pushback? Have you gotten any like negativity or, or legalities coming your way because of this telling this story? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think some of the pushback has come from the industry um, and, uh, you know, social media to a smaller degree. Um, you know, these issues aren't something that uh, people like to hear and talk about, um, particularly in this uh, this age of, um, you know, me too, all men bad, smash the patriarchy, toxic right. masculinity. You know, it's it's kind of, uh, it's a, a, a topic that's, you know, not really talked about. Um, and if you do talk about it, you know, you're easily misinterpreted as um, a misogynist or a men's rights activist. Or so, uh, you know, it, it's. I think it's important that these conversations be had and um, you know these issues talked about because there are there are people literally losing lives every day. Um, you know, families being broken up every day by this uh, by this legal system. You know, I had no idea before I entered the star chamber of, of family law when the cartel of family law showed up on my doorstep um, that, you know, family law is the only branch of our legal system where there is no presumption of innocence. And that was staggering to me. I mean, if you think about that, that means that criminals, murderers, rapists, terrorists, pedophiles all get more legal rights than um, law-abiding citizens and parents and children by de facto. So I'm calling upon politicians and policymakers to improve and reform the one branch of our legal system that has no due process, no presumption of innocence, and where parents are found guilty till proven more guilty. Excellent. That, that definitely needs to be done. And uh, You mentioned the word, you mentioned patriarchy, and somehow patriarchy has become a word that has been associated now with Pretty much anything that's bad in our society, it's the patriarchy. And men, men's right advocate, um, you know, that's basically now once, you know, caring about men is now basically has you one step away from being a MAGA racist. You know, you might as it, the lock in step, the way they, they change this language. Now, getting um, to the book, just right off the bat, the opening scene, um, if it wasn't actually true it'd make for like a great opening scene in a dark comedy movie you're locked up in a psychiatric hospital 
and you, you, you wake up being pissed on by a stranger and you're in 5150 because someone had called the cops on you for allegedly saying, I'm sick of this shit and now I'm going to harm the children. And for that report, just hearsay, you're in 5150. Your children were playing in the house. You were alone. The cops came and they handcuffed you. Just a day earlier, you're golfing with Adam Levine and pitching shows with Andy Garcia. And now you're getting pissed on in a mental institution. I, I just want to know like an overview of how you finally figured out what the hell was going on and figured out who made these false claims. Uh, well, uh, yeah. It, I mean, yes, it could be construed as a dark comedy or it could be a psychological thriller, uh, dystopian um, authoritarian descent into uh, d- descent into the authoritarian maze of the legal system that happens so suddenly. Yeah, I was at home. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was very sudden, uh, and, uh, it was extremely debilitating and confusing, um, because my rights were just, uh, basically trampled all over. I'd never had really that much interaction with law enforcement, no criminal record, never been arrested, still haven't been arrested. And, um, you know, in terms of how I found out and when I found out, well, there were so many pieces of the of the story that uh, came to light after the fact, uh, almost like a jigsaw identification, if you will, of um, who did what and when and how. Um, and this thriller, if you will, uh, that, that was, you know, my true story, um, you know, there, there were bigger pieces of the jigsaw became apparent later on, much later on. And I'm still, you know, to a degree piecing some of the smaller pieces together uh the jigsaw will never be complete um because you know finding out uh who said what who did what um you know the documentation the proof the evidence it's a it's a long laborious um arduous task but part of that is the reason why i wrote the book i didn't want to write the book i needed to write the book i needed to say to people who were going through and had been through and will go through what i went through suddenly and summarily removed from their lives and their children their livelihoods and um that sense of deep desolation despair depression and loss and living grief and living at times on the edge of existential angst and terror that you're not alone um you know, that's what I'd love to say to the people listening who, who have had experience or going through yeah. this. Um, similar, you're not alone. I'm sure they, they feel are. alone. I'm sure you felt alone. It's, it's, it feels lonely. Um, is, is it a problem that in, in where I'm in California also, I don't know how it is in most states, but it feels like in this state, an accusation can be made and the police are going to act on it and arrest a man without any investigation. Is, is that a problem? And, these sensitive issues of reports of threats to family, how should they be handled? Well, look, yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, it used to be that law enforcement had discretion if they were, were called to a home um, because there was a disturbance or an allegation of uh, violence or domestic violence, and um, they would have discretion. And now that they do not have that discretion, so they must take action. And it's this kind of middle ground where mm. they can't arrest someone and, and charge them with a crime because there either hasn't been a crime committed, uh, it's an allegation, there isn't evidence, or if that evidence is apparent, it's hearsay evidence. And this is why, you know, hearsay evidence isn't admit- admissible in criminal courts. Um, for this very reason, because the burden of proof uh, of jurisprudence that was introduced in Western civilization is on the accuser, not the accused. If you think about that uh, for a moment, that means, you know, back in the day with the Salem witch trials and the Spanish Inquisition, you know, the finger was pointed, you're a witch. No, I'm not. Prove it. Well, you can't prove that which you're, you know, that's why we have the burden of proof on the accuser. So, yeah, I mean, what, what, would, what would I suggest? Well, part of what I'm doing with my charity, CPU, Children and Parents United, which launch, launches concurrently with the book, is, is to offer programs and solutions and, um, and to really find ways that we can uh, improve this system. Um, so, you know, we have three practical solution-based programs. One is CPU communication which is workshops and programs that promote improved interpersonal relating. Because I think when, when communication and interpersonal relating breaks down and trust breaks down, 
um, it can be very, very difficult. Uh, well, it's 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 a low emission environment um, of uh, of of positivity that's it's lacking in that CPU mediation is uh, solutions oriented intervention experts to help resolve uh, conflict disputes. And CPU law provides legal advice, supports the mediation process and oversees legal procedures. And, and what the overarching goal with that is to train judges and legal practitioners to keep families out of court. That's the key. Keeping people out of the adversarial environment of a courtroom where parents don't have rights, there isn't due process, and two sets of attorneys representing two people who have loved and lived together for however long they they, they, they were, um, that now have two people representing them who are trained and skilled at making arguments. Right. Uh, so that so that we can you know one of the one of the programs we're talking about right now is um is a card a card system so every law enforcement officer in america is given this card with a 1-800 number and when they're called out to a, a situation at a home a disturbance or, or an allegation of domestic violence this card is given to the accused uh, or who the allegation has been made against which more often than not is um is a, a male uh and or father and so that can just give that beat. It can take a moment for the law enforcement to take a moment to calm the situation, for the partner who's making the allegation um, to take a moment, and for the accused or the person who's targeted by the allegation to actually call a number and receive some immediate legal advice um, uh, as to their rights in that moment. Um, so I think there are many positive aspects to doing something like that because... You know, this system, it literally is guilty till proven more guilty. Um, yeah. Very rarely is it guilty till proven innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that the, the, the police, when called into a home situation, used to have the ability or the they used to be allowed to assess the situation and determine if someone was in danger or not before acting. And that now... They have to detain the person who the threat is made about. Was am I understanding that correct? Well, from what I understand in California, that's the case. There isn't the discretion wow. that there once was because, you know, it's if you think about it, if if law enforcement shows up and they don't act, they don't do something, they don't remove someone from the home or, um, you know, make detain someone, question them. Um, and something happens, then, um, you know, given the litigious nature of the wild west of California legal systems, um, law enforcement could be sued uh, and officers could be removed from their position. So there's this but fear. That, that leaves you with the, the position where anybody who has a, a gripe with anyone can can make a call to the police and it has to be acted on. That's, well, that's, that's, that's dangerous. That's, <laughs> that's exactly what we have right now. We have anonymous hotlines where if, if you had an axe to grind against any individual, um, you can call in a false allegation and that hearsay is then used to um, damn someone, ruin their reputation, uh, take away their freedoms, their liberties, um, their home, their family. Yeah. Um, and um, there's, no, there's, no, there's no recourse, no coming back from that. Yeah, so, I mean, you were punished for years, you, 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 years away from your kids, um, lost a lot. Did Was a, any actual evidence ever presented against you or, or was all of this just hearsay and then being trapped in a system that you couldn't get out of? There's never been um, evidence presented of me committing a crime. I mean, the worst... The worst thing, and I, and I will say I regret this, um, after my second incarceration, um, when I found out that there was uh, the family, the money in the bank accounts, family bank accounts were being removed without my knowledge. Uh, I had no phone, I had no car, I had no access to the outside world. Um, was when I, I went home and I couldn't get into my house, I found a way to, to get into my house without a key. Mm. Uh, it wasn't the wisest decision I made, but, you know, if, if it's a crime to break into your own home, um, which is what I did, then, um, you know, I don't believe that is a crime. And that's no, why I, 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 I read that part of, I, of the book and you had been separated from your kids without warning for quite some time. I don't know how much time at that point. Your wife had been stealing your money 
Uh, she got your passwords and was liquidating accounts and you wanted to get in the house to see the kids like any sane man would have done the same thing, but you're, you're right. You're not, you're not in the right state of mind. And, and I'm sure that was held against you throughout the rest of the process. Um, I found it curious that, that when you were being arrested, um, I wasn't arrested, detained, uh, detained. That's a different. Yes. <laughs> okay. You're right. you're right. When you were being detained the first time, um, instead of grabbing your phone on the way out of the house, you grabbed a picture of your wife, which indicates to me that you were still very much in love and that that picture made you feel more safe than a phone would have, which is probably a bad choice. And I'm wondering why you took the picture and had you taken the phone, would you have been able to use it later when they needed you to, um, call a contact to find someone to stay with in order to be released from the institution? Yeah. So yeah, that part of the story, I, I, I'd had law enforcement enter my home without a warrant. Um, and they called the smart team of the DCFS, the Department of Children and Family Services, who came in, b- before they arrived, I was handcuffed in my own home, curtains wide open, lights on, everyone in the neighborhood walking by. Uh, I was kind of on display as some kind of, uh, you know, dangerous criminal. And um, they, they presented me with a stark choice, uh, one I had to make immediately. I didn't grab anything, I was handcuffed. And they, they had literally placed down my wallet and my phone and a drinks coaster with an image of my ex-wife as a baby. I'd got them as a Christmas gift for her and the family the previous year. And I chose the coaster. And I think at the time it was kind of a, I didn't think to pick my wallet and my phone because, you know, I was like my ex-wife now, she would, uh, she would you know, call and contact and come and see me and this wouldn't be an issue. It would be cleared up. Um, and it was a reminder to me of what was important, um, which was my marriage and wow. my wife of 20 years. Wow. Wow. So your, your wife then, you know, you're, you're, you're in 5150 for a few days and it's visiting day and you, you're surprised when your wife does not show up. Eventually she comes one time and she didn't seem concerned she only wanted to get the login passwords for your bank accounts and she kind of dangled freedom and you're coming home in front of you to get you to, to give these to her. And after you did, she recommended to the doctor that you stay locked up for a couple more weeks. And, and I'm wondering how, how, like you love this woman, you want to get back to your family. You're thinking she's going to come and rescue you. How do you hold on to your sanity after being betrayed by the love of your life like that? It was very difficult. Um, you know, I had, I was, uh, I was dealing with an all out psychological attack, if you will, within this institution. Um, that is, I mean, if you look at any of the reviews on this place, it is, um, a dis- disturbingly, um, uh, horrific place to be. I mean, I've read, I've, I've heard of stories of a mother sending her daughter there to get help for substance abuse. And the daughter took her own life after being sexually or physically abused while inside. Um, you know, I, I, let's just say I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I, I, I had this three days that, uh, you know, and I was trying to speak to someone in, in the, um, in this, uh, facility, to get my freedom because I literally had no contact with the outside world whatsoever. The only phone number I could remember was uh, my ex-wife's phone number. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't do that anymore. We don't remember phone numbers. We're, we're reliant on our technology for that. And it was actually a script, um, that, um, she brought the day before, uh, that kind of tickled my ankle as I was lying in this dormitory room with five other, um, individuals and um, it had my agent's phone number on it. So that was kind of my, uh, my inkling that I had an, a, a key or a way to contact the outside world. Um, but yeah, I, I, I remember seeing uh, there was a doctor and I'd been told I had to see the specific doctor who would sign my discharge form. And it, the conversation I had with him was, was um, very disturbing at the time because he'd never met me before didn't know me and I asked him I saw him in the corridor and asked him to you know sign my discharge 
And he just looked down and went, mm, oh, there we are. Uh, no, I've, after consultation with your uh, wife and mother-in-law, I've decided to extend your, day, your stay for th- three to 14 days. And then just turned and walked away. And it was that moment where it was just surreal. I remember thinking, what, what, how do I get out? How, I'm, I'm literally stuck in yeah. a, in a so- psychological, powerless. like totally powerless in the temple of doom. Yeah. Um, so I really had to, to think um, smart, which isn't easy when you are sleep deprived and, um, you know, you're in danger of uh, being attacked or urinated on. Yeah. Yeah. No one I enjoys mean, being a human toilet. No, that's for sure. Um, I've, I, I work in healthcare. I've worked in places like that. And frankly, I don't understand how anyone gets better. They're in a, in a situation like that. They're basically prisons. They're not rehabilitative at all. And it's a problem that our government can just yank a person out of society, rip them away from his family and incarcerate him that, that you were incarcerated against your will with no proof or anything. It's a real problem. Um, and it seems like this authoritarian kind of nightmare and, and overreach by government, especially in states like this, keeps getting worse um, instead of better. Like the, the, the problems are all, always addressed by more government intervention and more laws rather than stripping some of their power away. Now, I want to I want to um, change to to friends. Right. So you live in you're in Hollywood. You're in that business. I live in California. And what I've, I've I moved here from the East Coast and. What I found is some people out here, they, there's some great people, have some great friends, but a lot of people, they're superficial and selfish and just all they care about is their careers. You get a lot of superficial relationships. Your wife seemed to sabotage most of your friendships to keep you in lockup even longer. Um, and you have one friend, Adam Fogelson, who, who seemed to stand by your side. I'm wondering, did, did anyone else get your back through all of this or did everyone just turn their backs on you? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Adam Fogelson. Adam is a man of integrity. Um, you know, he knew what uh, what had been, uh, to, to a degree, he knew what had been going on. Um, and uh, he's he he stood tall and firm. There's another, you know, Jay Cohen, who was my agent at the time. Uh, he was there. Um, you know, there were people who were, who were available to me while I was incarcerated, and I managed to make a few phone calls. But... As you can imagine, you know, to to actually understand the just the the blanket uh, nature of of what had actually happened in that short space of time, um, when I'm frantically trying to literally just reach someone to to get me out, um, and people couldn't get me out. How can you? How can people get someone out of a psychiatric facility? when that facility has the power and the incentive to keep you inside. I mean, you know, this is, you mentioned it, you know, about um, uh, mental health. You know, many, many years ago, um, you know, people who were suffering with, with mental health challenges were thrown out into the streets. And so many of the homeless uh, weren't, weren't, weren't in the very facilities built to help them. And, and then, of course, you know, what happens when they're homeless, they're, they're, there's more propensity for them to be picked up by the police and law enforcement. And where do they go then? Jail and prison. So, right. you know, the abuse continues. So you, you, have, you have prisons full of people who have mental health disorders, and that's the last place they should be. Um, they should be in these facilities um, getting help. Um, from experts, and and then you look at these facilities, and what are they full of? You know, they're full of um, middle to upper class, wealthier people who are who have addiction issues um, and some mental health issues. But many people um, placed there because there is where do you put someone who hasn't committed a crime but needs to be detained and taken away and removed from their home? You know? Yeah. Wow. So messed up. And yeah, I mean, I, I moved to California in 1998 and I, I remember the shock at seeing Skid Row. And that's essentially what Skid Row is, is just a homeless encampment of people who belong, who need mental help. And that that place has just sprawled 
to consume much of the city now. Like it's in every neighborhood now. Uh, it's going in the wrong direction. Um, so during this whole process, I, I read that you had to visit the courthouse 80 times and you responded to countless forums, hence, hence the name of the respondent. You're constantly responding. Basically, 80 trips to the courthouse, that's a full-time job. So if some, if you're in, you're in the industry, you know, so your hours are different, but if someone has a nine to five, how do they keep employment through a process like this? Um, it's, I would say nigh on impossible. Um, you know, this becomes a full-time job. It becomes your career. Uh, you don't want it to be your hobby, but, uh, you know, even with legal representation, it's all consuming. Um, you know, you, you put that on top of what I had as well was random drug tests were, were ordered because my ex-wife's attorney claimed that I was some, you know, drug addled, psychotic, mentally imbalanced monster. And so, you know, twice a week I was forced to have random drug tests that I wouldn't even hear about until the night before. So this was just a claim out of the blue. Like, was there any basis for this claim? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that's in the book. Um, so, uh, I had, I went for a, um, well, the answer to that is there doesn't need to be in family law. Um, you know, what, what, what happens is when someone signs a retainer, they become the petitioner or the plaintiff, if you will, in family law. And by de facto, the other side becomes the, the respondent, hence the name of the project, the respondent. And the de dictionary definition of a respondent is the person who is called upon to issue a response to a communication made by a petitioner. The term is used in legal contexts and in psychological conditioning. Mm. Um, so when you think about that, psychological conditioning, so pa painting the other person as psychologically um, incoherent. Um, so... The, the first thing that happens is a declaration. So a declaration is presented by the petitioner to the court. And when I read mine, not mine, but the one that was written about me, I was, my, my jaw dropped, my head was shaking. The, there, were, the, there were photographs that had been taken and staged of um, pill bottles around the house. I didn't know what a, wow. I don't know what a pill was. I don't, you know, that's like alien territory for me. Um, and you know, the, these just wild and wicked, uh, hyperbolic, um, dramatic, uh, um, statements about me. And, and I would say nearly all of them were untrue. Wow. But again, because this system of family law, you know, it's presented as fact and these judges read it. And these judges were attorneys um, who then became, you know, family or who then became family law judges. And then they retire and, and take on cases outside of the system, similar to, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie have a retired judge adjudicating their case. So they all know each other. Um, they all know what's going on. Many times they look at the family estate and go, oh, okay, it's worth this much. I'll work on it for this many months and make this money. I mean, my ex-wife's attorney, I think, made... 1.6 or 1.7 million dollars before summary leaving the case, um, and all she all she managed to achieve was the break the, the the evisceration of my family, yeah, and the continuing ongoing uh, relentless um, um, nightmare. Yeah, only uh, for, only the lawyers make out in that situation. So you, you're 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 talking about the, the drugs that that makes me think of in the beginning you were talking about when when you were locked up you found it confusing that your wife kept asking you did you take your medication did you take your medication you hadn't even been prescribed any medication then your mother-in-law who seems like just an evil character shows up with a letter from your son asking you to take your medication to fix your broken brain which had to just twist your heart in a knot was all of that was all of that done to get you to take medication so they could had a, had an easier job to paint you as uh, crazy? <laughs> well, the irony is that it was my ex-wife who'd actually been uh, diagnosed with panic disorder. And she was the one that had been prescribed medication and she wasn't taking it. And I think that's part of what fueled this um, was, um, was a panic attack. Uh, and when they hit, they are that it's extremely debilitating for people who suffer from that illness 
And I have a tremendous amount of empathy and compassion uh, for people who, who endure that. Um, even my ex-wife, you know, um, it's very difficult to, to reason with the irrational and uh, panic disorder and panic attacks when they hit people. Um, the rational becomes irrational. Um, so, um, yeah, they, they, and talking of my, my mother-in-law, or ex-mother-in-law, I guess, would be the way to describe. It wasn't a letter she brought. She actually drove um, an hour and a half to visit uh, me, her son-in-law at the time, to deliver um, an audio. It looks like an audio message. The first thing she said, she was like, you're suspended from the country club. We're going to get you kicked out. We have you banned from the boys' school. Your photograph is with the security guards. And I got a message from your boy. He says, Daddy, please take the medication to fix your broken brain so that you can come home in time for my birthday. Wow. And wow. I was sitting there thinking, Where, where's the humanity? You know, what, what's like, wh- what? And I was processing through the fact that, that, you know, my sons were 10 and 8 at the time, that while I was locked inside based on this false allegation, they'd been telling my son and sons that I had a broken brain. And they'd been pushing this narrative which started the second day I was in there, uh, when my ex-wife called me, that I needed to take medication. Well, I didn't. I hadn't been prescribed any medication. I hadn't been, uh, you know, with my evaluation. There was no, um, uh, you, you, you have this mental health disorder, so we're going to put you on. In fact, the irony is that I was so, um, I was so desperate to appease her that. The second night I was in, I went up to the medication counter and I begged for them to give me medication that I hadn't been prescribed so that I could take something to appease my ex-wife to say that I'd taken medication that I didn't need. Wow. And they wouldn't give me any. I mean, I was like, literally, they had four sections in the book because it has to be signed in and out. And it was like, you know, sleep medication, psychotropic medication, this medication. I'm like, please check in the book, please check in the book. And I begged them, <laughs> which is just ironic. Um, yeah, you know, I, I could have, you know, had they anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what a, what a overall nightmare. And, um, yeah, your mother-in-law also, also went to the cops and said that she used to be married to a cop and was going to use every legal tool at her disposal to ruin you and that you would end up killing yourself or rotting away in a mental institution. I mean, clearly that shows intent to harm. And when, when we're talking about the, the court system and how just hearsay is, is submissible in court, like could statements like this be used in court against them to show they were- No, that's not, that's not admissible. That was reported, that was alleged and reported to me. So Wasn't um, that the same as your statement about them saying you, you were going to hurt your children? Isn't that also the same hearsay? Yeah, but by that time, well, like, like I say, you know, you can't you can't double down on hearsay once you have someone wearing the black hat of the respondent. You know, I can't go back in and and start, you know, and I only found that out, you know, weeks months later after the fact. Um, uh, and look, you know, this was this was um, I think this is what happens when there when there is uh, acrimony and sudden. Um, a sudden shift, if you will, in the in the temperature of uh, communication and uh, rela- interpersonal relating within a family. You know, the family system many times will seek a scapegoat and project all of the family's woes and troubles onto the scapegoat. And, um, you know, I was the proverbial scapegoat and became the lone wolf, kind of, you know, walking into homelessness. Yeah, yeah. Um I mean, child abuse, it needs to be taken seriously. It's, it's no joke, and it does happen. And it seems, as I read, you were abused some as a child, and, and stuff like that tends to be handed down generally, generationally. Um, child abusers obviously need to be punished, but also rehabilitated. Um, that said, there's crimes like child abuse or sexual abuse or, or um, spousal abuse, where it's very often just he said, she said. And as we're learning and per your situation, sometimes people lie to, to get what they want or they're scared or confused. I don't, I don't know why they lie, but people lie. Should lying about abuse be punished as severely as abuse itself? Like, does something need to be done to, to stop uh, false accusations like this? Because it, it, it can ruin a life in the same way that the actual abuse can. 
I, yeah, I'm not sure about whether it should be uh, prosecuted with, with the same veracity, but it's certainly we should be calling out false allegations. I mean, when I found out that, you know, there's a good percentage of, of uh, domestic violence accusations are false, uh, when I found out that um, when I looked for help after what happened to me in the, you know, online and in the marketplace of books, that most, if not all of the books were either law firms and attorneys, um, you know, call us before your ex does, uh, you know, to get people to sign retainers, or they were books on how to ruin your partner or your spouse wow. and get the house and get the kids. Really? And, Oh, absolutely. And, and most of them written by uh, women. And again, that's not to say, that's not to say that, that, you know, what happened to me is happens to women too, and mothers too. It's rarer, a lot rarer. Um, but it does happen. Um, but yeah, these, I, I, I searched for a book. And uh, the only book I found was uh, one written by Alec Baldwin called A Promise to Ourselves about his um, his odyssey through uh, family law and, and specifically inside the courtroom. My, my story starts outside the courtroom and then, um, and then progresses through the legal system and then out the other side. There, there is a redemptive part to my story, particularly in the final chapters of the book. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I haven't made it to the end. I'm glad to hear it. It's redemptive. Um, so, you know, we, we learn how to parent from our parents mostly and, and you know, from seeing others parent. Um, but that's our, our first example is our parents. And your, your parents didn't seem great, didn't set a good example for you. So how does someone like you who comes from bad parenting learn how to do it correctly? How did you learn? Well, here's what I'll say about that. My, my parents were flawed, and I think all parents are flawed. We, 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 we struggle as parents to, to be the best we can, to do the best we can. And, um, you know, it was different times when I grew up. Um, you know, there, was, there were challenges in our family home, and there were challenges in every family home. And I can, still, I can call those out and still have a tremendous amount of love for um, my parents, and, um, you know, to my point of the story about the, the end of the story, um, you know, I don't have anger and bitterness towards my ex-wife. That's that we, we, we can't, I mean, we, I mean, we can, but I, you know, we, I think we forgive others, not necessarily because they deserve forgiveness, but because we deserve peace and going through life with vengeance and anger and, rage um it, it's just a toxic brew of self um of self-annihilation true um, so finding ways to to move through it and break the cycle i mean that's the key you know i was forced through my odyssey to to you know as i was continually told that i was you know mainly by my ex-wife and her counsel uh, an attorney that i was um a stark raving lunatic and a drug-addled crazy person um, who wasn't safe to be around and needed to be locked up, I was forced to be uh, to, to go on this kind of journey of uh, enlightenment, if you will. So first of all, it was through um, being involved and having to go to 12-step meetings and facilities and learning about psychology and family systems of origin and um, uh, affect theory and uh, phenomenology and uh, how... Um, how the body works, emotions, feelings, a little bit of behavioral science. And as the system continued to tell me and instruct me on who I was and what I was, I continued to push back and learn more about self, capital S, and, um, and, and just become more confident or confident, but I like to say confident in self of who I, who I am. And, um, it was, you know, I, it was a break. I had many breakthroughs beyond my pre-existing belief system. Some were scary, you know, to realize that our, our institutions of uh, governance, which I trusted in before, are not fair. They're not impartial. Um, they, they, particularly no. in family law, it is not innocent till proven guilty. But also that, um, you know, we as humans are flawed. And uh, we, sometimes with the best of intentions, um, can make horrendous mistakes, but there's always a, there's always a way to recover from those. And I think recovery and looking at self in the mirror is, is very important. Yeah. Um, 
I get all that, and, and I commend you for doing the work. Mo most people would not come out the other side of what you went through okay. So you, so kudos to you for doing the work and having those self-realizations. Now, I know we're, we're running out of time here. I know you have some other obligations. I just wanted to ask a couple more kind of general things. Um, you, you make the statement early on that there's a belief in society that women are the fairer sex and that this is a destructive false narrative. Uh, fairer sex can mean a few different things uh, depending on how you take it. What do you mean by it? Why is it false? And how was it destructive in your life? Hmm. Well, you know, I talk about fatherhood. I think, um, you know, we, we don't talk enough about um, uh, men and, and boys and the value of that, that, uh, that, that males have in our society. Um, you know, you just look at what's happened recently with COVID-19 and this notion of the male disposability, 60 to 70% of, of, of COVID's victims are men. Um, up to seven out of 10 of the people dying behind glass partitions without their loved ones were men. 68.9% of unsheltered homeless are men. 93% of workplace deaths are men. And men kill themselves 400% more than women. 95% of war fatalities are men. So, you know, within the regular parameters of the American life, men kill themselves almost four times more than women. And fathers who become ensnared in the divorce system kill themselves eight times more than mothers. So there is, I think, some merit to talking, at least having a, uh, a men-to dialogue rather than just a me-too monologue. And... Um, and really speaking to what fatherhood is, why we have a, uh, a fatherless uh, uh, crisis, why the U.S. is the world leader in single-parent families. Yep. You know? Yeah, you're, you're, you're getting in dangerous territory there. You know, be careful. Like, these are things you're not even allowed to talk about. And I saw on your website, um, said it startled me because I didn't know it, that 4,000 children lose a a parent to the family courts every day in America, 4,000 kids every day. That's what is that? That's, uh, that's over a million a year, 1.2 million. And America has the highest percentage of single family homes in the world. So for a country that's doing so well, for whatever reason, we seem to demonize men. We've incentivized single motherhood. Um, and we create one law after another that works against the family unit. And, and I'm just starting to become suspicious and wondering, do we have good actors in government who just don't foresee the consequences of their laws and decisions? Or are we dealing with bad faith actors who want to ruin families for some reason? Well, as an actor myself, I don't want to talk about good faith and bad faith actors. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's, it's very, you know, it's a very complex issue. And I think we have, we've had movements recently that um, under the guise of, of moving forward and, and having wonderful missions and, and great purposes, what tends to happen with these movements, sometimes they get hijacked and the original message or mission um, gets skewed or, or becomes more extreme. Um, and I do think that, uh, you know, if, if, if masculinity is being targeted, fatherhood lies in the bullseye. Um, as, as society has rightly broached the institution of family inclusivity, the traditional role of a family patriarch has been severely denigrated. Um, to your point, you know, 4,000 children lose a parent every day the family courts are open. Um, today, one in three American kids live without their biological father in the home. These children are at a greater risk of facing difficulty in their lives with respect to virtually every conceivable metric. And, um, you know, we, we have this, we, you know, kids, boys, boys at school are lagging behind and it should be okay to talk about that and why, why we, um, why children and boys need more recess time, not less, more unstructured play time, not less. They have kinetic energy. Why we need to be providing them with boy centric books that spark the imagination, um, we need to let the boy play some more rather than restricting them and sit down, shut up, behave yourself um, and and not mollycoddle so much um, and helicopter parent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with dads, you know, boys in particular, but girls as well, as well, but mainly boys, you know, they learn risk reward. They rough out, rough and tumble play. That's so important. Um, and... You know, we, we have this. That's, that's toxic now. That's toxic masculinity, roughhousing, you know? 
Well, <laughs> look, I, I've heard so much about the patriarchy and I get that, you know, we, we have to have nuance, I think, in the, in the conversation. I understand Absolutely. that, you know, the, the, the system of male um, dominance in our culture and society over, you know, X amount of the last years. Absolutely. You know, I, 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 I'm well aware of that. But there's also the definition of the patriarch and the patriarchy, which is the father figure. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we, when younger generations of men and boys are hearing this messaging of smash the patriarchy, toxic masculinity, this isn't feminism fighting masculinity. The the, the factual equality feminists who've been at this for decades are fighting the noble cause of true equality. It's this rabid. Uh, radical strain of postmodern progressive fourth wave, third and fourth wave feminists who want to do away with the family unit, who see no value in men and fatherhood. They want to do away with women staying at home, um, which should be a woman's prerogative if she's married and wants to stay at home. Yay, all, all, all power to them. I wanted my ex-wife to do that. She didn't want to do it. She wanted to go out and work. And I was behind her in that. I, was, I encouraged it. I'm like, yeah, you have agency and sovereignty. I want you to be happy and you're empowered. Uh, to do that, but um, we have to look at who is who is driving these who's driving these narratives. I mean, look, the first day of he was in office. Um, I'll get political here, but uh, you know, President Biden signed executive orders that that talked about equality for all peoples, and mm-hmm. then in the very next sentence said, especially or particularly women and girls. Well, equality is equality for everyone. You don't need to single out, you know, women and girls and non-binary. And the, the thing, it just includes everyone. You know, abuse has no gender. Right. And right. We yeah, we need be- to, we need to, that, I mean, most people want equality. Equality should be encouraged. But now it feels like the men are being demonized and they're encouraging families to break up. And that's very dangerous for the future of this country. As you as you referenced, uh, kids who grow up in single family homes, it's like the number one correlated factor to whether or not they will end up in prison, how much money they will make in their life. Every success measure in life, the number one correlated factor is whether or not they grew up in a, in a one parent home. It's a, it's a big deal. So so demonizing the family unit, demonizing fathers, doesn't end well for this country. Um, no, it doesn't. And and then you know the nearly sixty billion dollar a year American divorce industry doesn't answer to the, to the Supreme Court. Is needlessly adversarial, promotes an uncivil war that the unwitting most of the time participants are powerless to stop. Family law justice is not blind. Courts presiding over divorce and child custody are not neutral. Abuses of power shielded by judicial immunity are not often checked. And no one's held accountable. And to your point, Matt, which is well made, you know, these children are at greater risk of having more difficult lives according to just about every measurable metric. They're more likely to misuse drugs, experience abuse, or go to prison, twice as likely to drop out of high school and live in poverty, and seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. Um, And this story doesn't, you know, it isn't much better for the parents of divorce and the effect on fathers is probably the most dramatic because we're devalued and we're disposable in society. We're sent off to war where, you know, it's like, oh, it's it's just another man. Well, and if you talk about it, you know, it's it's just another man talking about it. (laughs) It's just another heterosexual Caucasian man with a woe story. Ooh, boo hoo. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I hear you. Well, look, I know you got to get out. You, you've been very generous with your time and, and I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing uh, your story on our podcast. I appreciate you sharing it through this book. I think it's, I think it's pretty brave um, because I, I can just see shit rolling downhill on you and a lot of criticism coming for even broaching some of these subjects. So I, I applaud that. Um, tell people where they can find you, where they can get the book, um, anything else you want them to know. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Really appreciate being on the show. Uh, so therespondent.com. Uh, therespondent.com has all of the information about The Respondent. It has uh, 
information about the book, how to pre-order, has information about my new nonprofit, Children and Parents United, our mission, uh, which is really to promote and improve child well-being by providing information and resources to policymakers, legislatures, practitioners and the public, resulting in enhanced relationships and reduced conflict for those children and parents navigating our current family law systems. It has uh, the video podcast series episodes, the podcast, and it even has some interesting uh, merchandise uh, that's available. We've we've actually just put up some uh, two beautiful pieces of jewellery, um, which have been uniquely and specifically designed for us by uh, Proclamation Jewellery. And there's also one, um, uh, the code, which is uh, the campaign of domestic equality. It's actually the code, the free code ebook. So for people who buy the respondent uh, book. Um, they would they will get a code to get a copy of the code, which is a, a kind of a, a smaller book, um, which is to help people struggling to cope with the family law system or life in general. It offers impactful and immediate relief strategies uh, to survive what I call the six silver bullets of high conflict divorce and the magic ballistics of family law. It's full of tips, insights and secrets on how to navigate the trauma of family separation. Excellent. Excellent. So, so listeners get the book. I'm telling you it's, it's engrossing. It's, it's tragic. It's, I don't want to say entertaining, but I was, was, it's entertaining. It's a, it's well-written, get the book, uh, support the cause, learn about what's going on in divorce law, the, the state and the system benefits and lawyers get rich ripping families apart and it sucks. Thanks again, Greg. Appreciate your time and uh, keep spreading the message. Hey, thank you very much, Matt. And, and, and again, it's redemptive at the end. It offers some solutions. And, it, and, and, and I want to say to people who are going through it, uh, it, will help. it will help you and you are not alone. Thank awesome. you very much. Awesome. Thank you, Greg. Okay, guys, that does it for this week's edition of The Dad Presents. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed Greg's story. I found it fascinating. I hope you go out and get that book. I hope my Joe Biden impersonation did not embarrass me too much because, well, you know. Um, Please don't forget our sponsors, sheathunderwear.com, code word dad, and the expatmoneyshow.com. We will have some exciting guests coming up in the next couple weeks, and uh, please join us then. All right, guys, spread love and keep spreading that liberty message. Talk to you soon.